Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Welcome back. We are here. We are live. We are ready to go. We have been taking a pause um, from our Upside Down Kingdom series to talk about Valentine's. And I hope everyone's week was successful. Um, But (laughs) if you haven't... If you haven't actually listened to last week's sermon, as much as it is fun, there are some incredible things for you to take away um, in considering your singleness, your married life, your relationships. Make sure you get onto that. But we're going to continue on from our Upside Down Kingdom series. And we spent some time earlier on talking about the Beatitudes. And to give you some, to revisit the context, we have this Roman and this Jewish world in um, Jesus's time. And it's like this hot pot of culture and different ideologies and Jesus comes in and where they would say, hey, be like me or hey, be like me, like choose right, choose left, choose up, choose down. He's like, actually, I'm flipping the whole thing inside out and upside down. And you're going to hear a reversal of value judgments that are going to be applicable and eternal. And so here we find after the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes speaking to the characteristics of what it is to be someone who follows Jesus Jesus then says these statements that we find in the Gospel of Matthew and in regards to what now? Now that we understand who we are in light of our great teacher coming to teach us, believers, followers, Christians, what now? It's interesting, I was saying before how Christian, that term has become kind of like a naughty word where you say, oh, I'm a Christian and people are like, oh, oh. And it's like, we kind of like, get a little bit like dismissive of even using the word Christian, yet that word actually has Christ's name stamped on us. It should be something that we hold with great pride and great honor that we would be called Christians. And so we're going to read following on from Matthew 5 and verse 13 to 16, how we should take pride in that, that we should actually start feeling a sense of pride about the fact that we are different, that we are Christian, that we do have Christ's name on us. So grab your Bibles, grab your notepads, grab your pens, grab your brains, whatever you've got that is useful to you to retain Christ's teaching, grab it. Verse 13, it says, Matthew 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We have learnt about these characteristics that we find in the Beatitudes. And now Jesus actually takes us um, into consideration of the purpose of the Christian in this world. Jesus is now talking about now that you know 
these characteristics, let's see how it's applicable to this world. 1 John 2 states that we should be in the world, but not of the world. Now, Christ isn't saying you need to be separatists and remove yourselves from society. If you do that, how can people in the dark see if the light has been removed from them? No, he's actually saying you need to have a distinct nature while in this world. You need to be set apart while in this world. There is a way that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, need to be relating to the world. And so this passage shows us and reveals to us different ways that we get to relate to this world, to this world that is in darkness, that this world is not in light. We get to be that. And so we're going to start with how we get to be salt to this earth. You are the salt of the earth. If it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty? Again, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt is essentially different from the medium that it's placed in. It's, it exercises its qualities in actually being different. The very characteristic of salt proclaims a difference, and for a small amount of salt in a large medium, you can in, it's instantly apparent. Who's ever had like a boiled potato without salt? It's like bland and like kind of boring. You add salt and it's like, hey, this potato tastes good. Like potatoes are good, but you got to add salt. And so we're going to look at the different uh, ways that the Bible shows what salt was used for and how it's applicable today even for us. You know, salt actually has antibacterial and antiseptic properties that help with healing. Salt is good for healing. Salt, when applied on a wound, brings healing. It's Medically, they would rub it on newborn babies in the Old Testament as a way to preserve and protect that new life that came into the world. It was used um, where uh, excess perspiration resulted, which happened a lot in where Jesus was located in Palestine. It's hot there. And so they used salt as a way where their own human salt would, like their own salt in their body, that made sense, um, would, they'd perspire of it. They would have this excess salt that they would apply. And it's also used as a preservative. It preserves. It is the historical refrigerator. It, you would use salt to make sure that meat wouldn't go bad or that your food, your perishable items would be preserved for longer than they would be if they didn't have salt. It prevents corruption. Salt, when applied to something, actually prevents corruption from taking place. Now, when you think about these biblical understandings of salt, you understand that we are actually agents in this world meant to prevent putrefaction and decay. We are meant, as salt to this earth, meant to fight off decay. That is our role as salt in this world. And that's a pretty awesome thing to think that we get to bring life. We actually get to be something that preserves life in this world. And we should take that very seriously. Another thing that salt was used for in, in, uh, that we find especially in Old Testament times is it was used in worship. You know, when you get to the book of Leviticus and people are like, what do I read about Leviticus? Well, you read about salt in Leviticus. See, salt was applied to every single sacrifice that was brought to the altar. It was applied to the grain offerings. It was applied to any meat offerings. Salt was a part of worship. 
In Leviticus 2, we read about that when the Israelites were to bring salt and they added it to their offerings, it actually signified an eternal covenant. Why? Because salt would preserve. It would actually preserve. Do you know what else happens with salt when you bring it into an offering, right? They would bring these offerings and they'd lay them on the altar and they'd be burnt. Do you know what salt does when it's put into heat? It actually immerses itself even more into the medium that it's put into. Salt actually retains heat. Isn't that an interesting thought that salt doesn't lose its saltiness in fire? In fact, when you cook with salt, it's evident even after it's cooked. So when salt goes through the fire, when salt goes through persecution, when salt is tested in the fire, a true product of salt does not lose its saltiness. See, persecution isn't the thing that corrupts salt. Persecution isn't the thing that should corrupt your distinct nature as a believer. Being put in the fire, you should actually come out of the fire having spread far wider than what you were if you weren't in the fire. And so we see salt used in worship in this manner as as a part of their sacrifice. And we start to see how salt is more than just flavor. But we'll get to that. Salt is flavor. But what happens when you cook salt? When it's put in the fire, it doesn't lose its saltiness. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. When you cook a potato in salt, you get a salty potato. You don't just get a potato. The potato has salt in it, even though it's cooked. The potato changes. The salt remains salty, which is an incredible lesson for us to learn that Christ, after saying, blessed are those who are persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, you're salt. Guess what? When you're persecuted, you remain. You remain distinct. You remain salty. Salt absorbs heat. Mark 9, 49, Jesus actually says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, that kind of sounds like, whoa, like, what does that mean? I'm like, but if you're true salt, if you are a true follower of Christ, the fire will not corrupt you. The fire will not diminish in you. You will actually be even more distinct by going through that fire. When we are distinct and we come under fire, we come under persecution, we should always remind ourselves of the reward in heaven and remain constant in that. A covenant seasoned by salt was believed to be an everlasting one. In 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5, we read um, how Abijah stood on this mountain in the country of Ephraim and he was declaring to these opposing uh, um, might against the house of David. And he reminds them that don't you know that the Lord, the God, of Israel has given the kinship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt. Isn't that interesting? Like these little things start popping up in the scriptures and you got to understand Jesus Christ was no fool. He is divine and on earth his divinity was apparent, but he was an excellent human. He was not unskilled. At the age of 11, he was dumbfounding scholars and and teachers of the law. He was an exceptional human. And so he understands the scriptures. He understands exactly that when he says you are salt, he understands the application. He understands what it means. Salt is an everlasting covenant. It represents this everlasting covenant with God. And furthermore, it's it's not just us to God, it's God to us. Notice how it says, that the covenant of salt that was there for David was from God to Israel. That is an everlasting, unbreakable covenant that God gives to us. 
It is God's covenant to us. And Jesus is taking their understanding of sacrifice, their approach to God as an everlasting commitment to Him. And He's using its image to reinforce in their minds that to lose one's kingdom of God distinction is likened to breaking covenant with God. Another term that um, identified with salt through the scriptures was uh, this thing of wisdom. The rabbis actually commonly use salt as an image for wisdom. And Jesus is reaffirming wisdom literature within his disciples. See, the disciples weren't considered to be wise. They were considered to be common. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the wise ones. And wisdom in this time actually belonged to the righteous. Wisdom was an attribute of the righteous. And so Jesus is actually saying, hey, you actually need to have wisdom. Don't think for a second that I've come to remove wisdom from this dialogue. Like, actually, I'm reaffirming wisdom in your life, but I'm putting it through the lens of me. And so we see how this wisdom tradition is being now submitted into this upside down kingdom. See, Proverbs is full of instructions on wisdom, and we must find ourselves as avid students regarding getting wisdom, which, by the way, if we ask God for, he will give. Jesus is reaffirming this literature within his disciples. He's saying to the common man, get wisdom. Make sure that you have wisdom in all of your conduct. In Colossians 4 verse 5, we hear Paul say, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. He's talking about the relationship to this world, to believers, to this world. And he says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace and wisdom. He's saying, take grace and wisdom into this world, into your conversations. How often do we forget to take grace and wisdom? Instead, we bring, tr- we bring what we think is truth, our truth. We apply our truth and what people need to hear. We don't, we don't bring them grace and wisdom. We bring them our truth and our opinion. And we forget about the grace and wisdom that we're supposed to have in our conversations to this world, to this world. It's so interesting because we want to go into this world and it's like, instead of being salt, we want to assault this world. And it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw the gospel in your face. Yet Christ isn't saying that, yeah, you need to start throwing salt on people. No, he's saying you be the salt. You be the distinct nature. You be the distinct thing that sets you apart in this world to add value to this world. It's interesting because the Greek word represented by lost its taste actually means to become foolish. A foolish disciple has no influence in this world. This is what it's saying. If you don't have wisdom, you're a fool. As a disciple... If you forget this salt, this wisdom that I've given you, you become a fool and a foolish disciple does not have influence in this world. Be wise, be wise, seasoned with salt and always full of grace in our conversations with people. This wisdom does not come from the world, rather it comes to the world by those who are disciples of Christ. And I encourage you, church, Get in Proverbs, man. Like it is so full of wisdom in application. And if you're wondering, what can I do? How can I do? Get in Proverbs. It is an incredible book full of wisdom. Another thing that salt does, it actually adds flavor. We know this because we talked about potatoes and that adds flavor to potatoes. 
Disciples, if they are true to their calling, make the earth a purer and a more palatable place. Isn't that interesting? That if we are true salt, if we are true to the calling of being a disciple, we make this world a more palatable place. When people walk into a room where you are present, have you made that space more palatable for them to actually encounter you, encounter that distinction in you? Salt salt serves to give flavor. It adds value. Life in this world without Christ and therefore life without Christianity lacks the qualities and flavor that we find in salt. It's not found in the world. You got to understand, like, this is not me saying that I'm a better person than every single body, every, uh, every single body else, everybody else. We are on fire today. <laughs> no, it's actually saying as Christians, there is a distinction and a flavor that you add to this world that makes this world better. The world may not see it. The world may not care for it. But you actually make this place a better place. Before you are anything else, before you are anything else, before you are Canadian, before you are Australian, before you're Brazilian, Chinese, Spanish, Jewish, Italian, Indian, before you're conservative or you're a liberal, you are his. As soon as we start putting parameters on who Christ can be with, as soon as we start saying salt looks like this and has this distinction, we limit evangelism. We actually limit our influence in this world when we put parameters and we start to pollute salt. When we actually start to make it something that it isn't. Salt is not your political party. Salt is not your culture. Salt is not whether you're rich or poor. It's a distinction that you follow Christ and Christ is supreme above all those things and those things submit unto him. That is what salt, that is that distinct nature of us. The great hope for society today is in the increasing number of followers of Jesus showing their distinction as his, primarily his. Often we lose that conversation amongst the loud noise of this world. We decide to have conversations that make other things supreme in our life rather than having conversations that make Christ supreme in our life. We need to make sure that that is our distinction. That is the thing that shows that we are different. It's interesting because salt, actually, if it's true, if it is actually true, salt can't lose its saltiness. Do you know how salt becomes less salty? When it's contaminated. When it's mixed in with things that are not salt. See, salt as salt can't not be salt. However, what you would find is that when people would want to sell salt, they would put fillers in. And they would put these things that are not salt, that are not pure salt, and they'd put these fillers in. And what would happen is this salt would lose its saltiness. It would become contaminated. There is nothing more useless in this world than a formal Christian. And I say this with that conviction in my heart. This is not out of a place of condemnation. It is out of a place of a desire that we should be true in our faith, that we shouldn't be polluted in, in what we stand for, that we shouldn't be losing our saltiness, 
that we shouldn't be Christian on Sunday and make a big loud noise about it. But when we leave our church experience, when we leave that formal expression of what it is to be a Christian, we lose our salt. That is not true of a follower of Jesus. Salt, a salt can't not be salt. When it's contaminated with other materials, it will lose its distinction. When we allow ourselves to be polluted with the things of this world, we begin to lose our saltiness and our distinctiveness. For you to remain a salt of, the, of this earth, you actually must remain different. Can you remain different from this world? I know it's hard, church, but this is our distinction of believers. One thing that I want to draw attention to that Jesus says, there is no use in salt. It's, it's only good to be trampled underfoot. You know, ancient armies would actually pour salt on the ground and they would trample them, trample the salt underfoot. It would just be salt on the ground and it would be trampled. Do you know what happens when you put salt and soil together? When you put salt and soil together, the soil becomes barren. You can't produce anything. Salt that's been thrown out to be trampled underfoot actually creates, creates a wasteland. It's interesting how when you are not true to the calling of being salt to this world, when you're not true to being distinct in this world and you're just for being trampled underfoot, it's like this military tactic that they would just lie salt and they would do it so that there would, no, there would not be anything that would grow there anymore. Salt doesn't leave the soil easily, actually, and it can't be neutralized quickly. It could take years, years for rainwater to actually remove enough salt to make soil viable for plant life again. As a believer, have you lost your distinct nature that you are creating a wasteland? That when people engage with you, they engage with something that breathes life? Or is it bleak? Is it inhospitable? Is it uninhabitable wasteland? Instead of revealing life to the world, we represent death because we have become foolish in breaking our covenant with God. And in this, we are no longer a place of healing and protection. Salt was not meant to be scattered on the ground and trampled underfoot. As soon as we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, as soon as we are no longer salty and we become something that's trampled underfoot, we actually make a wasteland for so many others. I have encountered many times in my life where people have been burnt by Christians not being true to Christ. And it's left a wasteland for those seeking some type of hope for seeking maybe that there's a distinct nature about Christ that they could fall in love with. Yet be because we as his believers have decided not to embrace wisdom, not to embrace our distinct nature, not to be true followers of Christ, we've left a wasteland where no life can grow. And it's a shame when you have these people so hungry and so desperate to find a hope in Christ that the people that have Christ's name on them are purely formal Christians that have created wastelands. This is the danger of when we decide to lose our distinction as salt in this earth. Don't forsake life for death in your walk with Christ. Be distinct, be salt, be something that makes life grow, that actually shows a difference in who we are as believers and doesn't create wastelands. 
In verse 14 to 16, we read the passage about light. And it says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the type of statement that when we read it, it should cause us to lift up our heads and realize once more what an incredible and glorious thing it is to be a Christian. We are the light of this world. That is not something that we should be timid about. That is something that brings glory to God. And we should wear that proudly, not for our own glory. When we read this, by contrast, we see that if we are the light, then the world is actually in darkness. John 3.19 says this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This world is dark. We have the ability to actually bring some light to this world. How we do that is so important. When we read about light in the Bible, we read how light represents life. From the very beginning when God spoke, let there be light, life appeared. We read about how it was a symbol also of prosperity and happiness. It's the lot of the righteous. Light is the lot of the righteous. Rather than embracing or rejecting this righteousness, Jesus is actually saying that you need to reaffirm righteousness through him. See, the righteousness was the lot of the Pharisees. Like fishermen weren't righteous, like they weren't considered to be righteous. Yet Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And light being a symbol of prosperity and happiness, which belonged to those who were righteous, Jesus is actually saying, hey, you are righteous. You need to live righteous life. If you want to be the light, if you want to have things that are significant, uh, signify light, you need to live a righteous life. Where the, Phar- uh, where the disciples are probably like, yeah, we don't need those Pharisees, like, because there's a tension in relationship. Jesus isn't saying that there's not a tension in relationship, but he is saying, no, righteousness is important. Righteousness is key. Righteousness through me. Why? Because it, further on in John 8, verse 12, Jesus actually says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. But Jesus, you just said, I'm the light of the world. But now you're saying, like, who's the light? Like, which one is it? When we understand the beautiful unity of us with Christ, we start to understand how this statement, these two statements work together. See, our Lord's claim that he had come to bring the light and that light did not leave when he ascended into heaven. It actually, that light is here right now in you and I. These two statements always must go together. It shows the relationship of Christ and us. He is the light. And so we are, in the, we are the light when we are in the light. We cannot be light outside of Christ. We can't shine in this world without him, which means we cannot hide him. For this world, this dark world to be lit up, we actually need Christ to be evident in our life. It's really interesting because knowing that Christ himself made this statement, he then looks at his ordinary, insignificant followers and say, you are the light of the world. And without them even realizing of his impending crucifixion, he's saying, I'm with you always. By by saying, I'm the light of the world and you're the light of the world, 
what Christ is actually telling us is that he's with us always. He never departs from us. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think that his disciples sitting up on a mountain, listening to him say that you are the light of the world. What Jesus is, act- Jesus is saying, and they can't hear it yet. He's, he's saying to them, I'm going to be with you always. I'm always with you. You don't understand what this means right now, but you need to understand I'm always going to be with you. Not only have we received light, but we have become transmitters of light. And this teaching of Christ is revealing this mystical union between Christ and us. Isn't that, like, take a second. We talk about this a lot. The simple gospel, right? It's simple because we know it, we understand it, and we hear about it all the time. We have a mystical union with Christ. We do. We have this relationship, this connection with Christ. That is no small thing, church. That is an incredible truth that we need to hold on to. Christ's nature has become a part of us. He who is the light of the world works in and through us. In 1 John 1 verse 5, it says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Isn't it interesting what light actually does when, when we're not walking true in the light, we don't have fellowship with God. Yet when we do walk in the light, not only do we have fellowship with God, he extends it and says you have fellowship with one another. By being the light, we are being community. By being light, we are being in unity. Isn't that an incredible thing that when we truly walk in the light, we don't stand in the corner and be our own little spotlight. No, we're together in fellowship. When we are the light as disciples, as Christians, when we are the light, we are in community. We are in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with the Father. Light is community. Think about that. You are the light of the world. Light is community. We are this community in this world that exposes darkness. We don't have to do it alone. We don't have to go and just be this one solo matchstick. We get to be a massive flame together that lights up this world and that draws attention to it. His light brings us into community with each other. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. I've heard many people when asked about their Christian walk in pursuit of worldly acceptance diminish the things of God in their life. Yeah, I don't get to do that. Or yeah, I'm not allowed to do that because I'm a Christian. Because they don't have an understanding of what those things mean and the life that those things bring. I've heard it so many times where we talk down our Christian walk as something that is religious, that is something that doesn't give us freedom. Christianity gives us freedom. When we try to pursue the world and the worldly desires, we start feeling like we need to defend why we're not allowed to do things. We're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to have sex before marriage. How many times have I heard that? How many times have I heard, oh, you know, 
so how come you can't have sex before marriage? Oh, it's because I'm a Christian. And it's like this awful thing. And it's like, excuse me? You get to have sex with the one that you've made covenant with. Like flip this around for a second. Let's start being proud of the things that are distinct in our life rather than saying, yeah, that's really sucky. No way, man. Like, like I get to sleep with my husband. <laughs> that's, that is a great joy that I can go into my marriage bed only seeing him, only eyes fixed on him. Yet we say, yeah, I'm a Christian, can't do that. We've lost sight of what, the privilege, what a privilege it is to walk in the light. It, the Bible says that we, we want the darkness because our deeds are dark, our deeds are evil. And so we try to hide in the darkness. But I'm so sick of hearing people of faith, people following Jesus, when they think Jesus isn't listening, being like, yeah, I'm not allowed to do that. Meanwhile, he's like, I'm with you always. I'm right here. Like, aren't you proud of the fact that you are set apart? Aren't you proud of the fact that you have this distinct quality in this world that shows you're different? Yes, people ask questions because they want to have understanding. They want to know what it is that is different about you. Don't get so defensive and start feeling like you have to justify the things that you're not allowed to do. Stop holding those things with great pride. Protect yourselves, young people. It is a privilege to have one face that you think of when you're married. It is a privilege. Hold true to that. You know, to cover your light, it actually renders light completely useless. Like, what's the point? What's the point of covering up a light? Light in its very nature has purpose. Light in its very characteristic is a purpose. So what's the point of actually covering it up? It's literally useless. A true Christian cannot be hidden. He can't escape notice, nor does he want to. Someone who truly follows after Christ, who has decided to be discipled by him, transformed by him, following his footsteps, makes no excuses for the walk that he walks. How ridiculous is it actually to be like, let me just turn the lights on and then cover them. It's just completely useless. Are we that ashamed of Christ? Are we that ashamed of the transform transformed life that we get to live, of this distinction that we get to have? A Christian who truly realized what it means to be Christian has been face to face with the glorious grace of God and can't and has no desire to conceal their light. Verse 16 talks about good deeds and it's so funny that our good deeds actually re reveal the Father to others. They're not good deeds to elevate good deeds. They're to bring glory to the Father. It's not to parade our own virtues, but to direct attention to the God who inspired them. And when we do so, we give light to all. See, our virtues, our good deeds, when put in our hands, they might light up a little bit. But when given to God, when showing and revealing God, it lights the whole room. It brings light everywhere. When you walk into a room, do you hide your light? 
Do you leave the ground barren or do you bring people light so that they can see? When you walk into a room, do people see Jesus walking towards them? It's interesting because the projection of who we are is so obvious today. We have our social media identity. We have our Facebook identity. We have our work identity. We have our identity. Yet more often than not, I don't see Christ in it. It's so easy for us to make an awesome Instagram feed that doesn't have anything to do with Christ. I'm not saying everyone's Instagram feed is like that. What I am saying is our heart needs to be set that we would not try to glorify ourselves. Honestly, I think Instagram's main purpose is to glorify self. What happens when you glorify self is that people look at you to be the answer. And then you realize that without the light of Christ in you, you are not light. When Christ speaks about good deeds, he's not speaking to their craft. He's not saying, hey, if you catch a really good boat of fish, then people are going to glorify me. He's not speaking to what you do with your hands. He's talking about deeds of character. When you walk into a room and you bring good deeds, are you bringing good deeds of peacemaking, of mercy, of pursuing righteousness? What, what deeds do you bring? Are they deeds of craft or character? We spend a lot of time on our craft, but not so much time on our character. And I honestly believe, church, that because this whole world, the external world has stopped, maybe so that we could spend some more time not working on our craft, but working on our character. Maybe we've lost a little bit of the saltiness. Maybe we've lost a little bit of the light. Maybe God's trying to remind us that we should be proud to follow Him. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's proud to follow Jesus. What are your good deeds actually revealing to people? The outcome of being light is that people would come to glorify Him because of your good deeds. That your good deeds would not just be deeds for the sake of it, but they would be there to glorify God. The source of our light is the one who gives us light. Light not only exposes the darkness, but it shows a way out of the darkness. That's what we are to be in this world, church. We are to expose the darkness so that we can show people a way out of it. John 3, 16 to verse 21 is an incredible passage. And we know John 3.16 so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 says this, For God did did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Verdict, light has come into the world. Some people in this dark world will never have any light anywhere in this world except from an interaction with you and I and the gospel that we live and the gospel that we teach. They are watching, hoping, hoping for a difference that actually causes the darkness they've been in to diminish into glorious light. Do we, by our very presence, by one foot in the door, do we in this world, in your workplaces, in the shops, in the parking lots, do we show them this distinction? See, this isn't done. It doesn't. It, Jesus, it says that 
He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. Us being light of this world isn't done by telling them off, but by showing him off. It always will be. You can yell, you can scream, you can rebuke all you want, but unless you're showing Christ, you're not showing light. You're making it an incredibly hard place for people to feel like they can get out of darkness. We bring light. We don't bring what the world brings. We don't bring darkness. We bring light. The whole function and purpose of light is to give, to give to others. If light was just light by itself, if it excluded humanity, we'd still be in darkness and the purpose of light would not be working. Light is designed to be for others. In conclusion, it's interesting that when we look back at this scripture in Matthew 5, and I'm constantly reminded this, whenever I start reading the Sermon on the Mount series, I come back to the first verse in chapter 5, and it says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. In all that Jesus teaches his disciples, in all that he teaches us, he does so in light of the multitude. We are not meant to be this separate group of salt and light that is not relevant in this world. We are meant to be the thing that makes this world distinct. We are meant to be something that actually shows this world that there is a difference. There's a difference from darkness. See, it's, God's, it's Christ's great compassion for people that actually determined his conduct and behaviour. In our pursuit of being good Christians good followers of Christ, as soon as we lose the goal of relationship with God and humanity, we've missed the point of being salt and light. Relationship is the goal. Relationship, yes, with each other, but relationship more importantly with others, with this world and God. Why? So that God could be glorified. So people could come out of darkness. Church, we need to not forget the evangelistic nature of what it is to be a Christian. It's interesting because this world is so divided. Political parties, cultures, governments, it's so divided. And as soon as the church starts making that the supreme conversation of I'm this political party or I'm that political party, it disenfranchises the other people from the gospel message. It actually says, well, we can have it on this side, but because we're on this side, you can't have it. It actually diminishes evangelism when we lose sight of what it is to be a distinct Christian in this world. See, sin has no regard for culture. Sin has no regard for politics. Sin has no regard for the the rich, for the poor. Sin is as bad as it is in a conservative as it is in a liberal. Sin has no care. We should be we should be revealing light. We should be revealing the life of Christ in the darkness. And then all things under that can be submitted. As believers, do we forsake evangelism because of our opinion about how the world is? Let me make it clear for you. The world is dark. It needs light. It needs you and I to be set apart, not by political party, not by wealth, not by culture, but by Him. First and foremost, by Him. All things submitted under that.
Church, we're going to spend some time in worship. And I really, I do really sense that right now when the world is kind of paused and it's an external output of things, the whole, the whole outside world has stopped just so maybe that our inside world would become fruitful again. And so as you stand wherever you are, not feeling condemned, but feeling like God's light is shining upon you so that you could be that light into this world. Let's worship Him. And as we do, I'm going to finish on this passage that we read on Vision Sunday, and it'll be a theme throughout this year because it is our hope. Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Church, there is a world hurting and hoping for Christ in their life. There is a world on their deathbed, not having heard and not having seen the glory of our God that we would submit these good deeds so that we could become less and He could become more. Church, our great commission is to be a light to this world, is to be salt unto this earth. Let us not lose sight of the beauty of relationship that we get to have in restoring this world to its Creator. Let's worship, church. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.